Welcome to Febrile, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. We use console questions to dive into ID, clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah Dong, your host and a MedPeds ID fellow. After a short break, we are back with season three of Febrile. So this will run over the year 2023. Our co-host today is actually a return guest, Dr. Zach Lorenz. Zach is an internal medicine PGY3 resident physician at Johns Hopkins Bayview Medical Center. You should definitely check out his prior episode number 21 called Sailor's Salutation for an Excellent Discussion on Syphilis. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me back. Joining Zach today, we have two special guest discussants. First up is Dr. Morgan Walker. She is an infectious diseases and critical care medicine fellow at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. We also have Dr. Olivia Cates, who is an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. She has a focus on transplant and oncology ID, as well as bioethics. Hi. So before we jump into the case, we always ask one non-medical question. As everyone's favorite culture podcast, I'd love if you could share a piece of culture, something that you have enjoyed recently or had fun with. Uh, Maybe I'll start with you, Olivia. Sure. Um, I want to take this opportunity to recommend the movie Prey. Uh, that's P-R-E-Y, which recently premiered on Hulu. It's an outstanding addition to the Predator franchise uh, with really excellent indigenous uh, representation. Uh, and it's a fantastic movie. Love it. Um, what about you, Morgan? Yeah, so I um, had the uh, fortune of just adopting a uh, old English bulldog puppy. Um, so she Aww. is uh, my uh, my joy right now. Uh, her name is Magnolia. Oh, Aww. very cute. You'll have to send us photos. Yes, because she's currently <laughs> um, licking a Kong full of peanut butter as well uh, in order to keep her quiet. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, all right. And last but not least, Zach. Uh, okay. I just read a book for fun for the first time in a while, um, and it's an old book called Dune, uh, which it was amazing. I my, it's a, my mom is a huge sci-fi uh, reader, and it was a book that growing up she told me I, time and time again that I should read, and I, I never did, and I'm totally kicking myself for it because it was as in-depth as uh, uh, anything like Tolkien-related or any other world that I've read, so it was awesome. Loved it. I love it. Um, Okay. Well, Zach is in charge today. He's going to tell us about the case, and uh, I'll hand it over. Okay. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, Today, we on the General ID Service are being consulted for a case of a 29-year-old woman uh, who has a history of type 1 diabetes, um, who was admitted to the medical ICU at our institution after a seizure. The, a little bit of more background on that. The patient's family tells us that um, she has been struggling with depression and isolation uh, in the setting of the pandemic um, over the last couple of years, and she's had a really precipitous decline in her health really more so led to a pretty stark rise in her hemoglobin A1C to 13%. And several days prior to her admission, um, she was complaining to her family about some abdominal pain. Uh, And they were worried that she wasn't able to take her insulin and that she was having um, some intractable nausea and vomiting. 
she hadn't really complained of any other additional symptoms, um, and there weren't any other weird changes in her behavior. But on the morning of admission, uh, she was found by her family uh, with a sort of a, an altered sensorium, decreased level of consciousness, uh, prompting them to bring her to the ED. And here in the emergency department, she was found to be obtunded and febrile to 39.8 degrees centigrade, um, but otherwise was hemodynamically stable um, and uh, had a neutrophilic predominant uh, leukocytosis to 36. She also was found to have um, an elevated blood glucose level to 576, and alongside that had a pH of 6.8, a bicarb of 5, and an anion gap of 29 with some ketonuria on her UA. Um, so this patient got started on appropriate therapy for um, diabetic ketoacidosis. Uh, shortly after her arrival, she had a, a witnessed uh, generalized tonic-clonic uh, jerky movements consistent with a seizure that lasted for about a minute and uh, self-resolved without intervention. She uh, later uh, underwent intubation, unfortunately, um, with uh, initiation and mechanical ventilation for protection of her airway. Um, she also had blood cultures taken in the ED, um, and she was started on empiric cefepime and vancomycin. When the patient arrived to the unit, um, she was sedated and intubated. Uh, her exam was notable for some asymmetric pupils. Her left was dilated and sluggish, and there was some proptosis of uh, the left orbit. The remainder of her exam um, was otherwise fairly unremarkable, other than that um, she was withdrawing all of her extremities uh, to pain and she had intact brainstem reflexes. We also had a CT head uh, that was obtained in the emergency department that showed subtle asymmetric hypoattenuation in the inferior right frontal lobe, which the radiologist said maybe was some related to some artifact, um, and they recommended further imaging. There were no abnormalities in her chest, abdomen, or pelvis noted on um, initial scans there. And this patient also um, had an MRI brain that was obtained because of the um, irregularities noted on the CT head which demonstrated the, quote, absence of enhancement of the ethmoid sinus mucosa with diminished signal intensity on T2 flare imaging and extension to involve the right frontal lobe into the contralateral um, side. Uh, the radiology team called the team in the ICU to relay that these findings were concerning for an invasive fungal process. So, all that being said, uh, Morgan, let's say that the MICU team calls you overnight, and they want to know if they should start Amphotericin B for this person, and is there any other evaluation that they need to pursue urgently or emergently for, for her? What do you think, taking a step back, what, what are you most worried about for, for our patient? Thank you, Zach. Um, I would say of, of all the overnight consult questions, this is a very reasonable one. Um, but what I have learned in fellowship and uh, throughout residency as well is kind of uh, taking a step back to consider all the other possibilities. Um, 
uh, MRIs are fantastic. Um, sometimes uh, we concentrate, I guess, on too too much on one particular uh, diagnosis and don't consider perhaps um, what may be more likely. So, just from like a thirty thousand standpoint or thirty thousand foot standpoint, you know, this patient is presenting with fever and uh, seizure-like activity uh, in the setting of DKA. So certainly, the evaluation for causes of meningoencephalitis is is really important. And uh, we'll kind of put the concern for invasive fungal disease on the back burner for a second. So considering bacterial causes, things like uh, strep pneumo being the most common cause of bacterial meningitis, right? Um, Beyond that, you know, she does have poorly controlled type 1 diabetes. So that might actually give her some sort of uh, immunodysregulation rather than immunocompromised state. And so consideration for for starting ampicillin for things like listeria might be reasonable as well. Um, And then also keeping in mind things like HSV, so viral causes of encephalitis um, for a younger patient who's presenting with fever and seizure-like activity. So I think that is kind of step one in the differential diagnosis. Um, So uh, in summary, just optimizing her antimicrobials. Um, You know, is cefepime and vancomycin really the best approach for for this particular patient? and then I 100% agree with uh, getting the the imaging, right? So the CT head, um, the uh, MRI brain prior to doing a lumbar puncture, you know, and starting empiric antimicrobials um, be- before getting an LP. But a lot of times I think what we run into as consultants is um, delaying the LP and then also never doing the LP. Um, so although I 100% agree with uh, delaying the LP, um, keeping in mind that it is important um, diagnostically to get that information, uh, even if the the CSF culture would ultimately be sterile because of the early initiation of antibiotics. Um, So those are kind of the things I would uh, kind of start thinking about. And then the next step is to address the the question of, do you start empiric amphotericin due to this concerning um, finding on the MRI? And you know, I think it's really hard to to create a patient presentation that would be more consistent or um, uh, higher or to have higher suspicion for invasive uh, mucormycosis, right? So she is a poorly controlled type 1 diabetic. Um, she has an A1C of 13. She comes in in DKA. I mean, this really is the patient that you would um, anticipate having an invasive fungal disease, um, particularly mucor in. So I am uh, completely okay with starting empiric amphotericin. But with that said, if you're calling me for amphotericin, I am very hopeful that you have already contacted the ENT consultants um, and they are on their way to the bedside so that they can do um, uh, direct visualization of the sinuses. Uh, And I say this because it's in incredibly helpful for them to provide that information for you. A lot of times these patients will have um, areas of necrosis within the sinuses um, and they will be able to, they meaning the ENT consultants, will be able to say pretty confidently their concern for an invasive fungal infection versus otherwise. And then also at that time, they can actually get tissue biopsy for you, which is incredibly helpful in making this diagnosis. Um, The histopathology um, of mucor or mucorales is very specific uh, and uh, can be helpful even more so than cultures sometimes in increasing or heightening your suspicion for this diagnosis. Um, And then they can also be helpful in planning early surgical debridement um, as kind of a staple um, or a cornerstone in the management of of this disease.
Now, I think one interesting question, because um, if I was a resident who was not interested in ID, I would 100% ask you, okay, that's great. I can start amphotericin, um, but what dose would I actually give? Um, and, uh, you know, I think that there is a good conversation to be had about that. Um, some people would say five megs per keg. Some people would say 10 megs per keg. Um, the current guideline recommendation from the Lancet ID paper in 2019 is actually that you do 10 megs per keg. Um, but the data that um, they make that recommendation on is based on observational studies and then some animal models. And so I think from the ID consultant standpoint, um, considering risk uh, versus benefit in terms of using the higher dose of amphotericin is kind of where you're going to definitively make that recommendation. Um, and so in a younger patient um, who perhaps has functional kidneys despite having poorly controlled um, diabetes, I think at least starting out the 10 meg per keg dose um, would be a reasonable starting point. But, uh, but that would be a uh, answer or a question that my attending Olivia would probably be uh, better at uh, answering in addition to any additional management questions um, in consideration for, for alternative etiologies for invasive fungal disease. Awesome. Thanks, Morgan. I think that you're right about the higher dose of uh, amphotericin B for this patient. Uh, and I'll tell you why. I think when you're going to start an empiric antifungal therapy, we know that these medications don't necessarily work quickly, right? This is not the same as starting an empiric gram-negative um, antibiotic. This is a little bit more challenging. Um, and so I'm asking myself, what is the margin for error here? I know that for most of these patients, we end up having to make a change in the future. So which change am I going to feel better about making? And in this case, I would feel much better about starting on a very aggressive uh, dose of ambosome and then putting myself in the position of having to de-escalate that dose if I then see toxicities from ambosome. Because frankly, if we've reached the point where we're seeing toxicities from ambosome, we've extended the patient's life expectancy because um, this is an immediately life-threatening illness. Um, so yeah, I would start big. And if we find ourselves in the position of needing to make a change, then we could back off to 7.5 mix per kg or even five. Um, but I think 10 is the right starting point here. You're going to want to be really careful with that, though, because your patient's in DKA and ambosome is going to facilitate electrolyte wasting. And so you want to make sure that you are helping the team stay on top of things like potassium, magnesium, uh, repletions for their patient who may be on ambosome and an insulin drip, um, right? That's not usually in our ID wheelhouse, but since we like to take a comprehensive look at everything that's going on, and since it's definitely in Morgan's critical care ID wheelhouse, uh, I, I try to look for uh, antimicrobial toxicities along with the teams that we're helping out. Uh, and Morgan, I think you're completely right about the ENT evaluation too. This is an opportunity for direct visualization of the area of interest, right? You can look right at it. Why wouldn't you do that? Um, ENT can also perform some therapeutic interventions during nasal endoscopy. So this is diagnostic and potentially therapeutic, and it can also facilitate other uh, more invasive therapeutics like getting patients to surgery uh, if ENT determines that that's indicated. Um, I'll point out a, co a couple other opportunities for direct visualization, right? There are a couple of things that we can look at uh, in other cases. So not this patient, but uh, dilated eye exam is direct visualization of the nervous system. 
And so I always recommend dilated eye exam before you're going to do any invasive testing of the nervous system, right? There are pathognomonic findings in the retina for things like uh, toxoplasmosis or West Nile virus, um, meningoencephalitis. Uh, so if you're thinking about doing something wild like a brain biopsy, go ahead and take a direct look first. Another direct visualization uh, hint that I'll give is uh, the oral exam and the genital exam if you're thinking about herpes virus associated disease. So if you see a patient, um, you can imagine a patient coming in with fulminant hepatitis and you're gonna send uh, HSV PCRs thinking maybe they have a HSV associated uh, hepatitis. Go ahead and perform the exam uh, to see if they have lesions consistent with HSV because you may make your diagnosis uh, more quickly that way. I guess, Olivia, from a um, immunocompromised standpoint, given your background in transplant ID, um, this patient is not immunocompromised in the classic sense, meaning they don't have a hematologic malignancy or a transplant and they're you know on tacrolimus, so on and so forth. But would you consider alternative etiologies of an invasive fungal disease for this particular patient? And would you be comfortable with just doing amphotericin empirically rather than a combination of, of um, antifungal agents? Yeah. So I think the most common cause of uh, invasive fungal sinusitis in this context is probably going to be one of the mucorales, a zygomycete um, from the mucorales. And so I think ambisome is a very good first choice. I think that this patient is a good candidate for combination antifungal therapy, mostly because the next antifungals that we're going to add take a long time to achieve a therapeutic level, right? So if I'm going to add, say, boriconazole, I might be waiting several days before boriconazole is actually making a significant impact uh, on my patient's disease. So I think starting uh, an azole antifungal in combination up front is actually pretty reasonable because if you ultimately determine that you don't need that, you may be able to withdraw it even before uh, you've reached a therapeutic level. And then, yeah, I know this patient is not uh, typically immunocompromised. And so I just point out a couple of different factors that affect my suspicion for invasive fungal infections, right? There are host factors in immunocompromise, especially neutropenia, uh, is one of the host factors that makes it more difficult for the host to clear uh, fungal uh, processes. But there are also sort of host environment factors that just create a more favorable environment for molds to grow. Uh, and diabetic ketoacidosis is one of these, right? The mucorales in particular uh, grow better in this acidic environment. Um, another one of those environments actually is iron overload states. So patients with iron overload states are also predisposed to these processes. Um, and then there are sort of pathogen uh, factors as well. And I think that there's can be in our immunocompromised patients, at least kind of an inoculum effect, right? So if patients have exposure um, to environmental molds from activities like doing a lot of gardening, uh, cleaning out their gutters, uh, they may be more likely to down the line present with a mold infection. You guys are awesome. This is so cool. <laughs> um, moving on with our case. Uh, given the high concern for an acute invasive fungal sinusitis with the possibility of rhinocerebral mucor 
uh, like you guys pointed out. Uh, we did start empiric um, liposomal amphotericin B at 10 milligrams per kg for CNS penetration. Closely monitored her magnesium, potassium, and her renal function along alongside that, like you guys mentioned. Um, we did also consult ENT uh, uh, overnight, um, and they uh, came to the bedside and performed a nasal endoscopy, um, which showed uh, bilateral posterior, um, posterior septum and middle turbinate necrosis, uh, and findings that were overall concerning for fungal elements uh, in the left middle turbinate. They obtained uh, sinus, uh, tissue, and fluid specimens, and we, they sent them to both the pathology and microbiology labs. Otherwise, sort of fast-forwarding uh, through that night and to the next day, um, her metabolic derangements attributed to her DKA were corrected. She remained uh, intubated and sedation was weaned. And on serial physical examination, however, her neurologic exam um, started to worsen. Um, she began to um, only withdraw to, to um, stimuli in her lower extremities and um, started to have a weakened uh, cough and gag reflex. Left people that we initially saw in the in the MICU um, started to become more sluggish um, when reacting to light. The other piece of data that I'll um, give you guys is that uh, later on her uh, serum beta-D-glucan galactamannan uh, fungal biomarkers resulted as negative um, or non-reactive and repeat uh, CT head demonstrated a, a worsening of the intracranial process. Given this, the, the MICU team calls again, and they, they say they really want to make sure that they're treating the right organism. And so the question is, how might um, we differentiate the various fungi that we, um, that we discussed on histopathology? I'm remembering something about angle branching um, from medical school. And then this is sort of a leading question, but can we rely on microbiologic culture growth alone for of our specimens? Uh, I guess whoever wants to take this one. <laughs> I can take the first stab. Um, sure. So I think that fungi are very interesting. I think that there are a handful of filamentous organisms that you can somewhat differentiate between um, just based on the histopathology. So um, mucorales, just as a group, is going to have a, a specific finding on fungal stains, right? So you'll have hyphal elements, um, which um, in kind of the world of fungi, they can either be septate or aseptate or not have septations. Um, and that really is the kind of dividing branch between the mucorales group and then um, everything else that is septate. Um, most commonly, it's going to be aspergillus. Um, and so what's interesting about uh, this particular finding is that um, it kind of actually um, explains why sometimes it can be really difficult to grow mucor in culture um, because the septations kind of house the different nuclei and cytoplasm um, for the, the fungus to actually grow. So if you have multiple septations, right, and you injure one of those septate, then the hyphae can actually wall off the rest of them and kind of protect the rest of the pathogen. So it'll actually grow in culture. Um, so if you submit the 
the tissue specimen um, and they grind the, the specimen down, it can actually um, disrupt the tissue enough to the point where you aren't able to culture um, mucor. And so um, most of uh, the microlabs are, are aware of this. And so when you tell them you're looking for, you know, mucor mycosis, um, they understand that they should prepare the slide in a slightly different fashion. And that means doing it um, a little bit more um, gingerly per se. Um, and so you actually retain um, the structure of the, the hyphae. And so when you see um, hyphae that are um, aseptate and branching specifically at 90 degrees, now this is a, a textbook answer. Certainly there are uh, branches which perhaps are not specifically at 90 degrees, um, but that is the classic look of the mucorales group. Um, and so knowing that, it's actually very helpful to separate that from um, aspergillus, right? Because you're going to kind of, you're going to treat them very differently. Obviously, in this case, we would use empiric amphotericin rather than um, an azole uh, group for empiric treatment. So I think the um, uh, histopathology slides are actually uh, the, one of the most important um, pieces of, of information that you can have in this case. Um, and then the culture data can be certainly helpful um, in identifying the specific genus and species. Um, you can also consider doing susceptibility on the actual um, culture. However, you know, I'm not entirely sure how helpful that will be for you, given that most of these pathogens are rather susceptible to amphotericin. So I think the culture is really helpful in saying that this is the exact organism that's causing the problem, but not necessarily helpful. Uh, if it's negative, I certainly would continue treatment for uh, invasive mucor. Yeah, awesome, Morgan. I actually think that the popular terminology for preparing these samples is mincing. So you're going to want to finally mince your sample, which kind of just makes me imagine uh, you know, Chef Gordon Ramsay in the micro lab giving someone a hard time about their uh, fine mints. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right. So you want to avoid damaging these essentially very large cells, right, from the uh, zygomycete or the mucorales organism, and so that you have the opportunity for it to grow. But you're also right that the antifungal with the broadest activity against uh, molds in this family is going to be amphotericin. And so most likely you're going to be using amphotericin regardless of what you ultimately uncover if your histopathology is consistent with one of these uh, zygomycetes. I do like having antifungal susceptibility information, especially for patients who ultimately experience toxicities from their first-line antifungal because then it can be more difficult to choose the next medication and the susceptibility information may be more illuminating there. It's also helpful for people who fail first-line therapy, um, especially if their first-line therapy was an azole. That said, the results that you see in antifungal susceptibility testing, right, the MICs that you see for many organisms, they will have no standard interpretation. <laughs> And even those that do don't necessarily correspond to clinical outcomes. And so you still want to review the literature for the organism that you've identified and still want to confer with your uh, expert colleagues to make an antifungal uh, choice for some of these organisms, because a lot of this is done based on experience. Sorry, brief interlude to throw the toy for my assistant, Ozymandias. I'll move on with the case. Uh, so... Histopathology stains, like you guys mentioned, are the first to come back with useful information. 
um, and these um, stains obtained from uh, the en end endoscopy samples demonstrate aseptate, ribbon-like, 90-degree branching hyphal structures consistent with the order mucoralis. A fungal culture, culture uh, um, obtained from the nasal tissue results pretty soon after that, actually, uh, and shows preliminary heavy growth of uh, rhizopus oryzeae. I'm realizing I've never said that word out loud before. <laughs> um, in addition, uh, the ENT and neurosurgical services uh, have joint discussions um, about the patient's case and unfortunately uh, are unable to offer uh, surgical debridement um, given the extent of the cerebral involvement that's seen on imaging. I know that we kind of touched on this idea of adding a, a second agent like an azole in addition to amphotericin. Um, is there evidence that you guys know of to support salvage therapy, or how should we go about thinking about that idea at this point in, in time? Sure. So I think at this point, um, I understand why you would be asking the question, um, given that there is not a possibility for surgical debridement. With that said, I think the times in which we're using salvage therapy, it's either because we are putting everything at the pathogen that we can. So we're doing, uh, you know, combination antimicrobials in addition to surgical debridement, or we're in this particular situation in which one of those options isn't possible. Um, so I think that it would be a discussion with the family about um, the fact that this would be a possibility. But um, in general, the experience with treatment of this particular process um, is not very successful in the absence of surgical debridement. And I think because of that, there, you know, the azole, the group of azoles are not without their own toxicities and risks associated with them. And so starting it um, in someone with a little optimism of, of, benefit, I think, would be uh, my hesitation. Um, so, I, you know, there's not a, a paper that you can direct someone to necessarily that says in this particular situation for this patient, the right decision would be X. Um, I think that uh, when you're at this point, it would be a matter of um, being honest with the patient and their family about the likelihood of this um, resulting in a um, good outcome um, rather than just adding to the difficulties of the care and, and potential side effects and toxicity. Yeah, I think if you find yourself really in any of these difficult situations, you want to be really precise about what you're trying to do or what you're thinking about trying to do. And so I'm not just talking about the patient and the family's goals for their care, but I'm also talking about the intention behind your treatments. And so killing mold is not the intention behind your treatment, right? What you want to do at this point, what you wish that you could do at this point is actually reverse what seems to be the very rapid and relentless expansion of a mold-driven process in the patient's brain. And so while dumping a new antifungal on top of this mold might cause the mold to die, I don't think that administering a new antifungal systemically to this patient is going to do the thing you really want, is going to reverse that relentless progression of the mold-driven process in their brain. 
that said, there may be other things that you want, right? So I agree with Morgan, who's really sensitive to this uh, point that you're going to want to discuss this with the uh, patient's family. And I personally think it's totally reasonable to use antimicrobials for patients who may be at the end of life because it signals to the patient or to their family that we're making the effort they've asked us to make to show that we left no options on the table. Uh, and so if that's what this family is going to benefit from in this situation, I think it's reasonable to consider combination therapy. Um, if instead we can model for the family being judicious uh, with interventions in this uh, moment and really focusing our attention on uh, comfort or spending time at the bedside, then I think that we can uh, try to do that. But, I, you know, these are uh, very personal choices, uh, more so than uh, medical choices at the end of the day. That is really helpful context. I admire the way that both of you guys are thinking about this for our patient in the midst of goals of care discussions, uh, the patient's family did elect to add on a second agent, uh, posiconazole. Um, and as the patient continued to not show signs of Im improvement um, over the coming days, um, uh, actually, despite not having evidence of systemic toxicity or adverse effects from, from the um, antifungals, the team continued to engage in goals of care. Um, at this point, they are curious if you have any any insight as to prognosis for the patient while they engage in these goals of care discussions. Is there any data or um, uh, points that you guys would, would make to them to help guide their discussions here? Yeah, so I think unfortunately, um, so in general, the data um, regarding the management of this particular disease is not robust in the sense that they are, are randomized clinical trials. Um, there is observational data. And I think within one of the larger um, uh, retrospective studies, they really found that there's a survival benefit associated with the use of amphotericin and early surgical debridement. With that said, I the survival benefit was not great. I think that around somewhere around 58 to maybe 60% of patients that received the combination of amphotericin and surgical debridement um, actually survived. And then therapies below that, so medical management alone, surgical debridement alone, um, kind of were obviously less than, than 60%. So in general, this is an incredibly difficult disease process to manage. Um, so even at best, the prognosis is not great. Um, and in the absence of being a candidate for surgical debridement, um, I would not anticipate that this patient would do well, unfortunately, despite our best efforts. I agree. And I think you could maybe even hear in our answers to the last question that we had kind of become pessimistic about the patient's prognosis. Even earlier in the story, uh, than the primary team or the family. Uh, and so it's something we have to be sensitive to that we often arrive at the conclusion before others do, and certainly before the conclusion actually happens uh, in real life. But yeah, I would be pessimistic about uh, this patient's prognosis. 
not only does this condition, right, rhinocerebral uh, mucormycosis have a really unfavorable prognosis without surgical debridement, this example of rhinocerebral mucormycosis appears particularly aggressive. And so I think putting that into context for the primary team and for the family, right, the we have seen this condition now more than once, and this is a more aggressive uh, example uh, than average for me. Uh, can help them to sort of interpret the information like that Morgan might be giving, uh, you know, the percentages of individuals who get this diagnosis uh, who survive. Remember that you're not the average patient with this diagnosis. Unfortunately, you are uh, the patient with this diagnosis about whom I'd be the most worried. Thank you guys so much. Uh, just to wrap up the case, ultimately the family did elect to pursue compassionate extubation um, for our patient. Um, thank you both so much uh, for teaching us about this syndrome and the fungi that can cause it. Do either of you have anything else that you wanted to make sure that we hit on um, that we didn't already um, or anything else that you wanted to, to add? No, Zach, I think you did an excellent job of presenting the case. You know, Zach, I also think you did an excellent job. But since I am the expert, I'm going to take this opportunity to kind of wax poetic. And I want to just go right back to the beginning of your case and point out something that I heard, uh, which is the devastating mental health impact of the pandemic, right? At the end of the day, if you wanted to understand this case from start to finish, just like you presented it to us, it really begins with social isolation. Uh, and I don't think that that problem went away just because uh, we got rid of, air quote, lockdowns, right? I think that the pandemic has really radically changed the social landscape uh, that people are living in. And so a woman uh, in her late 20s has had a radically different experience of socialization from, uh, I guess, some of us participating in the recording today. I don't know about you guys. I'm no longer in my late 20s. Uh, right. And so I think that we're going to continue to see the uh, effects of that social isolation for a long time uh, to come. And I'll also say another kind of socially isolating life experience. We're recording this at eight o'clock at night. Uh, because you guys work so hard. And so for the infectious diseases attendings who are tuning in, we have three, uh, two infectious disease fellows. And Zach, are you a future infectious disease fellow? Please say yes. I, I hope to be. Yes. I I to be. <laughs> we have two and a half infectious diseases fellows working hard during their free time to produce what I hope turns out to be a very cool podcast uh, because these guys really work very hard. Thank you so much to Zach, Morgan, and Olivia for joining Febrile today. We look forward to bringing you more episodes this year. Don't forget to check out the website, febrilepodcast.com, to find the consult notes, which are written compliments to the show, our library of ID infographics, and a link to our merch store. Please reach out if you have any suggestions for future shows or want to be more involved with Febrile. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and I'll see you next time.